0: When you're looking so hard at money, it's really easy to say, Oh, well, do I want to spend $5,000 on this vacation? When in the grand scheme of things, if I looked at my net worth right now, and it was $5,000 less, I wouldn't feel like a failure. But I would have a really, really cool experience. And so that's kind of been my goal probably in the past six months, is to focus more on using my money as a tool to buy things that I will enjoy and things that will enhance my life, rather than just purely a tool to grow my net worth for some hypothetical future reason. You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled Podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation, now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson.
1: Alrighty, welcome back to another episode of the Millionaire's Unveiled Podcast. This is Clark here alongside my co-host Jace. This is episode number 182. Jace, how are you? What's going
2: on? Doing great, man. Just uh, trying to survive these uh, sky-high real estate prices, sky-high lumber prices. Just it's insanity out there right now, man.
1: Yeah, it's crazy. We were thinking about that because just as a, as a quick recap, we had Tony last week for episode 181, net worth about $2.5 and, and about three-fourths or so, right? Jason's net worth is in is in two paid-for houses, one is primary home and then a rental. And, and so we just started talking about that and the rising real estate market. And, and I have a couple of friends all over the country that have recently bought or in a couple of places across the country that have bought homes, and I mean they could they could sell them now two months later after they bought them and make a decent profit. Hmm. Hmm.
2: Yeah. It's it is an insane market, and I feel like it's really getting felt all across the country. Uh, you know, just real estate prices in general, and then obviously the demand for new construction and and lumber. I mean, it's just it's crazy, right? I'm in the space my, myself, and so I'm kind of in a, not a front row seat, but kind of a front row seat because we are essentially the end distributor, obviously not the builder, but end, end distributor. And just since the pandemic started, I mean, we're just... The prices have never been at this level. And, you know, a lot of it really... I mean, there's a lot of factors that have kind of driven some of this you know, on real estate, but specifically on the lumber and and new construction. A lot of it kind of started back in really at the end of 19, when there was a, a small strike in Canada, the rail strike that caused a little spike in prices as the mills were starting to shut down a little bit just for, you know, normal seasonality. And then we obviously went into the pandemic at the beginning of middle of March. And that's when some of these would typically come back online to, to apply and, and basically for seasonality again, you know, for the spring and summer building and into the fall seasons. And of course, with the pandemic going on, a lot of them didn't come online. And then obviously, we felt this massive increase in demand, especially for treated lumber. People are redoing their decks or doing additions or whatever projects around the house and then that spurred into just this insane demand for new homes and still none of these lumber mills were coming back online. So, you had demand was outs- outsizing supply and it's just continued. And the, the suppliers and these mills have not come back online. COVID's played a little factor into that probably. I don't see any relief in the near future. I mean, it's crazy. I saw it just the other day. You know, typically, you know, there's there's futures traded obviously in the lumber market and uh, when these commodities go up by more on the futures market by more than like 30, 30 I think it's like thirty or thirty two dollars a day, they halt trading. So think back to what we had the with the uh, GameStop stuff where they halted trade. I mean that kind of happened with futures lumber market, which is just unheard of, you know. And we're we're you know four figures per thousand board feet, which is kind of how how lumber is priced. I mean we are just seeing astronomical. Prices and it doesn't seem like it's going to stop anytime soon. And and that's just driving up real estate like crazy. And there's this influx of cash. So is, it,
1: is the lumber going up everything from just like a two by four to a slab of wood?
2: Pretty much, yeah. I mean, OSB is definitely like, you know, the sheathing and whatnot that, that goes on homes is definitely where, you know, essentially we we, we look at pricing the most. But yeah, I mean, two by fours, it doesn't matter. Any type of lumber, it's in short supply and. It's it's sky high prices.
1: Wow, and it's the highest it's ever been.
2: Oh yeah, it's insane. I mean, it's you know it's over a thousand per thousand board feet, which you know typically you know for the last like three four years you know it's been t- tapering around four hundred probably. So you know three hundred to four hundred. So we're sitting you know triple that right now, basically quadruple that almost. <laughs> wow. So you know you you figure like I'll oh, double the double or triple the lumber package that goes into your house. And then, you know, it's not just those materials. It's a, it's a lot of other materials as well. And labor, labor shortages. And then everyone's getting stimulus checks. And it's just an insane amount of cash in the economy right now. And like people have an unlimited spend with, with, with driving up prices of houses. Hmm. Crazy.
1: Yeah, yeah. there's was a, there been a couple articles in the Wall Street Journal and I saw one on CNBC this week that the mo- one of the most searched for things, or, or not the most searched for, but one of the like, searches that had the most increase in the last few months is when is the real estate market going to crash or when our home price is going to go back down. Yeah, I mean it was like have... That was up several hundred percent.
2: Yeah, we still have, you know, record low interest rates for the most part, too. I mean, they're, they've gone up a little bit since last year, but, I mean, not enough that is going to really swing, you know, some, some purchasing power, right? And yeah. if Biden goes with this first-time home buyer credit, I mean, it just, it'll just push those prices even
1: higher in a lot of ways. Right, right. Yeah, interesting to see what happens, especially also with that money, all that money stimulus, money pumped into the economy. I think that makes a difference, too, obviously. Yeah. So... Anyway, it, it's interesting. Last week we talked about we had Tony. Interesting interview there. He worked for Dave Ramsey for fifteen years. Uh, was actually his, his what his chief operating officer?
2: Yeah, I think some some in his organization and high up in leadership for sure.
1: Yeah, so he worked for Dave Ramsey for fifteen years. So that's interesting with him. Uh, on this week's episode, we have Taylor. He's actually a repeat from episode twenty-seven. When at that point he had a net worth of dollars, and now he's a newly minted millionaire. So a few years ago he was at five hundred, now at a million. And so we go into the story with him, just talking about things he's learned on his journey from 500 to a million here in the last few years. So fun, interest, interesting interview with Taylor. And he's coming on to do what? Jace's million dollar hauler. <laughs> so that's with Taylor today. All right, let's talk real estate. So if you're interested in investing in a multifamily or commercial opportunity, send us an email at millionairesunveiled at gmail.com. Also, if you have a deal to share, if we end up uh, buying it or Seeing it through, we'll we'll pay a finder's fee for bringing that deal to us. Always looking for good multifamily commercial real estate deals as well. So thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoy the show, leave us a solid review on any of the platforms you listen to. And without any delay, please help me welcome Taylor to
0: the show.
2: Taylor, welcome to the show.
0: Hey, thanks so much for having me.
2: So, give us a little rundown. We had that was back in what 2018, and at the time, you had a net worth of 500 thousand. So, what's transpired since then? Yeah,
0: so in uh, I guess it's been just over two years. I had the goal at that point in time at 29 to hit uh, that million mark by 35, but thanks to some good market returns, we've been able to hit that significantly earlier than expected. So, several months back, we hit the. I guess. It, yeah, about a month or two back, we crossed that million dollar threshold. So super exciting!
2: Awesome, congrats! I wonder, just as the markets kind of rebounded here, how many "quote unquote" pandemic millionaires we we will ha- have created or had? Or you know, looking back, you'll definitely be one of them, right? I mean, twenty twenty is the year. Like you became a millionaire during the pandemic, right?
0: Yeah. yeah, I think it's. I honestly do think it's like perfect timing that everything was going. Down, down, down. People that were disciplined stayed the course, didn't pull out money, kept on investing when it was low. I think that was like a slingshot effect that helped a lot of people that were on the cusp to just shoot past that mark.
2: Totally. Did you start adding more money, more cash that you had on the sidelines into the market as it was declining back in, say, February, March of of, of the year of this year, twenty twenty?
0: I didn't do a ton of that in terms of adding more cash, um, that we had on the sideline, but I did ramp up our 401k, um, allocation. So I maxed out my 401k by like May. So that all timed out like perfect.
2: Interesting. So let's go through maybe the allocation today and, and we can kind of compare it to what it looked like, you know, back in, I guess two years ago. How is the million allocated today?
0: Yeah. So it's a little over. 10% in cash, actually. Although some of that cash is in HSAs. So not necessarily true cash, but I guess it is. And then about 70%, just under 70% in investments in mostly in the stock market. We can talk a little bit about this more later, but I do have one real estate hard money loan outstanding. And then of that investment balance, so that's like 735,000 is in the stock market or in investments. And about 63% of that is in a brokerage account. About 15% is in a Roth IRA. 16% is in traditional IRA slash 401ks. And then 1% in an HSA, um, actually invested. And then the remaining like 3% is in a hard money loan. And then we are shooting to pay off our house early. So we've got just over 200,000 in home equity, which we're just looking to continue to pay that off faster primarily for like cash flow purposes and then finally the remaining amount just under 20,000 we have in our cars i do count the cars just cuz we could sell those but i guess we're we're past the million mark even without the cars so i'll take that
1: yeah
2: totally so in terms of your allocation has much changed from your mindset of, of what you're doing and how you're allocating everything from from 2018 to now
0: I don't think so. And it was interesting because I actually went back and listened to that. And I think the main lesson that I have in listening to from that article is that I was pretty cash heavy then. I think I had like 70,000 in cash back then. I actually have more in cash now. And overall, like stock market looks pretty much the same, mostly passive. Uh, passively invested. However, like one thing that hasn't really changed is like I, I mentioned, I was interested in getting more into real estate. I, aside from my hard money loan, which again has been, um, both good and bad, a lot of positive or good lessons that I want to apply and stick in the hard money loan space in the future, maybe get more heavily invested there. I haven't really ventured too much out of investments. It's just been the vehicle that I identify with most. It's just easiest for me just to continue to plot money in there when I look at my. When I look at my checking account and when or savings account, I guess, and when that balance climbs up to a certain threshold, it's easy for me just to go dump twenty five, thirty thousand into the stock market as well as Roth IRAs and that types of thing, those types of things. But I'll reiterate what I said back in twenty eighteen that we do want to get involved more directly in real estate, not necessarily with the hard money loan. It's just crazy with uh with the pandemic going on, the housing market and Arizona is just completely nuts. I mean, with the combination of interest rates and I'm not sure what all the things are. I guess people being cooped up and now they realize this house is not actually their dream house, and they want to go find a new house. But the market is just going crazy. I feel like there's got to be another shoe to drop. So I honestly would not be surprised if I dip below the million dollar threshold at some point. Although at this point we're now approaching 1.1 million, but I just feel like if I keep a lot of cash on the sideline. Much so like I said in 2018, that I can potentially be ready to deploy that into some really attractive real estate offers. And it seems like the, the Airbnb market seems to be like really attractive in certain areas around Phoenix where I live right now. And so that would be um, attractive that we're, we we kind of have our eye on.
1: Jason and I were talking before, we're like, you know, Dave Ramsey does his debt-free scream. This is like your, your I'm a millionaire scream, right? Coming back to the show <laughs> and saying you're a millionaire.
0: Yeah I'll, yeah, I'll be back. And hope. I mean, hopefully that doesn't happen. But again, I do, I do think it's very likely that it does happen. Like you just look at all of the factors, like record unemployment, essentially, and the market just continues to go up and up and up, which obviously the market is future looking, not current looking. But still, it is kind of bizarre to, to look all that in the face. So I guess it's important to just stay the course. But I do have cash on the sideline, just ready in case we do see some opportunities. So I'll be back soon enough if it does go down.
2: Yeah. So Taylor, I got to ask: now that you've reached this this pinnacle in it, I mean, at some point, right? The compounded interest of your investments is just going to take over more so than than what you'll contribute, and and probably you've already built the base to to do so. Is there any inclination of maybe taking the foot on the gas off the gas a little bit in terms of putting money into retirement? accounts and maybe putting more into a brokerage or something?
0: I would say not currently just because of what we have already. Like in our actual investments, if I include the hard money loan and the brokerage account, like it's already like 65% brokerage plus a hundred thousand in cash. So we already have a lot of money that of course it'd be a tax hit today. But we already had a lot that would be liquid today. So I think we're still in favor of maxing out the 401ks as long as we can. We're actually not capable of contributing to the Roth anymore. And our money our is a little muddled up across like traditional IRAs, which makes it really challenging to do the backdoor Roth. But yeah, I think we'll continue to do the 401k just because we're able to save enough in other areas that I'm not too worried about being too uh, concentrated in that money that would be hard to get to.
1: Let me ask you about the hard money because you mentioned that a couple of times. Tell us a little bit about that, how that came to be. Yeah. So my
0: my dad actually has a decent amount of experience with hard money loans. And so I kind of got the idea from him where it seemed attractive. You're getting... Essentially, you're giving someone money for a moderately short-term amount of money. I mean, maybe anywhere between 6 to 24 months to either build a house, flip a property. And so it was really attractive to me that I could get more money potentially than what you would shoot for in the stock market, maybe like an 8 to 10% return. And so I ended up chatting with one of my friends who's been in real estate for about 15 years now. And honestly, this is where it is. It almost turned into a horror story because a lot of it was, hopefully he doesn't ever listen to this. He is kind of a borderline like, con man in that he makes you feel really comfortable what you're doing. And this is the lesson I learned from this. Really, there was just a lot more trust involved that he was making me feel a lot more comfortable in this process. However, after I looked back at this, and essentially, basically the basics of the deal, he bought a property at auction, um, I gave him 35000 to flip the property. And then and it was 15% interest APR. And he was going to just pay me out in full on that interest when he sold the property and he quoted me a six, to 12 month period. And uh, the actual agreement was 12 months. However, again, this is where it gets a little hairy because I basically found out about 18 months after. So we're six months outside of the period that he should have completed all of this, that basically he just didn't do any of his due diligence on actually completing the, completing the contract, He kind of convinced me that, oh, you don't really need to go through title. Like, As long as you trust me, then we're fine. There were just all these like sketchy things that happened. I didn't get an executed contract from him. He didn't end up putting me in first position on the property um, like he was supposed to. And it got very scary there for a second because we went just under two years and he never made me a payment, even though this was supposed to be a six to 12 month period. However, about two months ago, he started making me weekly $2000 payments. So, out of that what grew to 45,000 including the 15% interest is now down to about 23,000 outstanding. So, he has made really good progress on that. So, I luckily this is like the best possible situation in which I made I mean basically every blunder you could think of and not again fingers crossed that things kind of continue but that I will not get burned on this deal, despite everything could have gone really far south. So I think some learnings that I've had from this is I do want to do more hard money loans, but 100% I will always go through title. I do think it's important for me to get um, first position like I did on this last loan. And then finally, talk with some references because now after the fact that I've talked with some of his references... I'm basically hearing only negative things like he basically does this type of thing with everyone, not sticking to deadlines, that type of thing. And I think the fact that he was my my friend, I I gave him a little bit more leeway in not doing some of this light work I would have done with another person. So I think it's just arming me with a lot more information so I can be a much more savvy investor moving forward. So I feel like that's really the best situation. Learn a lesson, but not get burned in the process.
1: Right, right. So you've gotten thirty three percent
0: of it back, ish, right? A third. Yeah, something like that. Maybe just over. Okay.
1: And was the model to buy the house and to fix and flip it and then pay you back from the profits of it?
0: Exactly. So not monthly payments, which I know some some hard money loans they'll pay you like monthly installments. This one is just no. I'm going to make you whole after the property is sold. But that gave him no motivation to actually do any work on it. Although he is paying me fifteen percent interest. But what I've learned is, I mean, a lot of people. They don't think about things that way. Like he's essentially okay with this property accruing interest in the background. Cause it's not there. He's not paying interest to me every single month. So it just sat there for 20 months, essentially.
1: Oh, has it sold yet the property or has he,
0: no, I, <laughs> that's, that's the other funny thing is I don't think he will, by the time we end up getting out of this property, I don't think he will have ever touched the property. So essentially I gave him, I gave him money. He paid me 15% interest to not do anything with it. Although, as you can imagine, a guy like this, who he does have dozens of other projects going on. My money was 100% deployed, hypothetically, like in these other projects where it shouldn't have probably been deployed. Just, I don't think he keeps very good records. And so it was, I'm sure, an asset to him in one way or another. But... No, I don't think he's going to end up flipping this property when all is said and done.
1: Yeah, hard money lending. I mean, we we have some millionaires that come on, and I think just a few, right? Jace, that have done it, but it could be a pretty lucrative thing if you find somebody that's reliable and and needs it for just that short period. And and eighteen months, it's pretty long, I think, right? Like usually six months to a year, maybe.
0: Yeah, and that's what it was supposed to be until yeah, he just kept on. Saying, yeah,
1: yeah. Until yeah, he
0: yeah. kept on missing deadlines. So um, it's interesting because now that I'm starting to have a little bit more money my dad has some new home builders that essentially need this where it's just it's just easier to qualify or to go talk to a hard money lender where you're not having to go through all these hoops to get financing where my dad has now had two builders that have done everything they said they were going to do and they're paying anywhere between 12 and 15 percent interest and like you said it's it's a lot more like the six to twelve month term and so I'm looking to either go in jointly with him because if you're building a new home, that's when it starts to get into bigger dollars where the builder is going to need anywhere between 150 dollars to $250,000 right. in order to complete that project. So I do think that that's a more compelling opportunity in the future. Just yeah, really good, kind of locked in term. And if you're first position, if the home builder doesn't finish the project, and as long as you're giving that money in tranches, you definitely don't want to start out giving them $200,000. So if you give that to them in tranches, you are kind of watching the property get built up because the, the the builders are local to where my dad lives. So he can kind of keep an eye on things. I feel like it's a much more safe route and worst case scenario, which someone like me who's not super handy, I don't want to inherit a property, but at least it's a new build that's going to be worth something. Right, right. You got something.
1: Yeah, we'll do some hard uh, money loans, too, it, it, when we're looking to get a building in contract. We'll take a hard money loan just to get a building a contract, raise the money, and then pay it back. Exactly. It's an opportunity too. I don't know if you're interested or somebody else. Anyway, it's 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 pretty interesting. Let me let me just the elephant here, right? Five hundred thousand in two years. You're at a million now. You were at five hundred thousand just over, I guess, two years and five months ish, right? How did this happen so quick? How how much were you saving annually? What was your rate of return? How were you able to do this so quickly?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. So. I will say, and this is um, also a throwback from the last from the last podcast, but I definitely got lucky with marrying who I married because my wife is extremely hardworking, um, does really well um, on the income side, and also spends hardly any money. So um, we've averaged in the past couple of years like two hundred fifty thousand in before tax income, and so that goes a long way. And when we're saving 60 to 70% of our after tax income, obviously adding just over a hundred thousand per year, that can go, go quite a while or go quite a ways. And then the past two years, market returns have been great. I mean, aside from the recession, we are just coming out of the past quarter. Um, market returns have been great. I would, I would say, I mean, I'm not getting anything more than market returns because I'm just. Invested broadly in the market, but I do have a lot of, I mean, a lot of exposure to large cap stocks, which large cap stocks have done super, super well the past two years. So I'll need to look at what my actual return is. But I mean, it's nothing exciting, because I haven't done anything that probably everyone else who's listening to this podcast haven't done. Already, um, I guess that's the beauty of you get 400,000 invested in the market. And over the course of two and a half years, you add two hundred and fifty, three hundred thousand 300,000 to it. And it just continues to build 10% year over year. That catches up pretty quickly. And it turns into a pretty formidable number before you know it.
1: Yeah. It's a, it's a good answer. Cause that's what my next question was going to be is what was your base, right? Bec- or your base, like your, your base layer of investments in the market, right? Because two fifty pre-tax, I mean, let's call it one seventy-five, two hundred, whatever, right after tax, and then you have fifty, sixty, seventy, I don't forty, whatever you guys spend, right? So you're investing one twenty-five, one fifty, maybe a year, and that's three hundred. So you still had to have a good base, and it sounds like you did. So amazing, good for you guys.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think, and it's interesting because I've always viewed our biggest growth engine for our net worth, it always has been our Income, which we came from again, just a, a small throwback. We came from in 2013 when my wife and I both got married. We were making like a cumulative 45,000 a year, but those were entry level jobs and we were able to quickly assert ourselves, grow in our careers. And my wife now does uh, software sales and she's done really well doing software sales and she's averaged over a hundred percent or sorry, over definitely over a hundred thousand the past probably four or five years in income. And then I was a financial analyst at Intel here in Arizona, but it was just like the most soul-sucking job ever. And I just could not handle it after um <laughs> about a year there. And so I left and I'm now working for a small software healthcare startup that I was actually the third hire at the time. And now we're up oh. to like 12 employees and growing well. I'm hoping my equity there will be worth. Um, something someday, but I took a little bit of a pay cut to come to this company. So I'm making like just under a hundred thousand at this company. But, but again, hoping that my, I have a half percent equity with this company. So if that can add up to something someday, then that would be kind of the cherry on top, although not, not banking on that.
1: Yeah. So let's talk about that. Taylor, how come you decided to make that move? Was it, hey, I'm going to take a chance earlier in my career? I don't know what your guys' kid situation is, but to take a chance and you can always go back and work for a bigger company? Or was it that, I mean, you mentioned you didn't like the job at Intel, but how come you decided now was the right time to take that that opportunity?
0: Yeah, I do think that there was an element of it just made sense at that point in time. Like we we had a really big safety net and it's it's kind of funny to think back in hindsight because it was like the most bizarre interview process ever when i um, told my wife that i wanted to leave kind of the security quote-unquote security of intel to go join a two-person at the time company like my wife was not a fan of that like she is probably the most conservative person frugal person so telling her oh yeah i'm gonna go join this company which um Again, she was just not a fan of. So, actually, in my last interview to join this company, I actually brought her. It was a Skype interview. I've only worked remote for this company. The founders are in San Francisco, but I actually brought her to the interview so she could meet the founders. So very bizarre. I'm sure they're like, I've never seen someone bring their wife to. Like, I already had the job <laughs> offer. It wasn't like I was. Bringing yeah, her they're like, do we man. really want this? Good, but they were already like very sold on me, and I just needed to sell my wife on the opportunity. So I kind of brought her into the final thing where they were just because I had probably a list of like 15-20 questions for them on like a word doc because I needed to know this thing was stable before I joined because um, you can imagine how many questions you might have never meeting people in person and it's only two people at the company but I found it there's actually a really cool platform called angel list uh, angel.co super super cool anyone who is interested in going to a smaller company, I would 100% recommend that company because there's just so much transparency. It's focused on startup companies of just like all different, um, from all different areas. And it lists how much equity you'll get. It lists salary range. It lists, it's just like very concise in what type of candidate they're looking for. And then the application process is also very simple as well. It's essentially like you upload maybe the equivalent of like a LinkedIn profile with your resume. And then you can basically type in a short cover letter. And so it's just super easy to apply. Um, it gives the employer what they need to see. It gives you what you need to see and what you actually want to see about the job. So again, cannot more highly recommend Angel West for any of you who maybe want to take a shot on a smaller company.
1: No, it's really interesting. I've heard of it. I just haven't heard of. I just haven't known somebody that that's found something through it. But it's, it's I, you know, I've looked at it for fun. It's interesting to look at. it. There's a lot of the positions.
0: Yeah, and then um, to answer, which I realized I didn't answer your initial question, I found that um, I think it's interesting when you start going down this like financial independence route, which I'm very interested in. I just found very quickly to Intel that I almost felt like I didn't belong there and i didn't fit in from like a methodology and a what my goals were standpoint because i think that people at intel they kind of viewed this as oh i'm going to be working here till i'm 65 like this is just what i do and i just kind of do live the american dream i spend all my money save a little bit i'm at a nice secure company and the most basically i would go around and i would ask people what is your favorite thing about working for intel And time and time again, it basically came down to two answers. We get paid really well for what we do and it's flexible. And I just like told myself, that is a horrible reason to stay at a job that I one get paid well for what I do and two, it's flexible. That's horrible. Like not, there were maybe two people that I asked that the first thing that came to mind was, I actually really like this. I like the technology or I like the problems we're solving. Hardly anyone was saying that. And it was just a very pragmatic approach. And when you start to save money and have a little buffer, you start to have that, I guess, metaphorical "fu" money. And that kind of gave me the courage to take a shot on this startup where I felt like I was going to be a lot more passionate about not wasting my time and my energy on these non-value-add tasks that I just continually found myself wasting days and weeks at a time working at Intel doing these tasks where i was i would ask myself why does this even need to be done and it needs to be done because someone five levels above you asked for it even though they actually don't really care about it it's just they're not the one doing the work so they're going to ask someone else to do the work
1: right exactly it reminds me of the uh, episode 100 where we interviewed david and he said like work for equity and if you're not working for equity work for a work for work for enough money that you can go buy equity so Sometimes maybe the money can be so high that you're like, oh, I don't know. It's hard. If you have a really good base salary, sometimes it's hard to leave.
0: And I think if there are definitely people at Intel that make great money, and I could have 100% been one of those had I been, I just was not a very good employee either because I just was not passionate at all about the work. And so there are definitely people that make really good money there. But I just think if you wake up every day and you don't like what you do, the... The income you're bringing in needs to be more and more and more just to compensate for that. Yep. And I don't think enough people make enough in their jobs to not go take a risk on something, especially because when I found when I started looking on AngelList, I found there's actually some really cool companies that you would probably a lot more people would identify with and have much more fulfillment working in the job. And I actually probably wouldn't make that much less. In some cases, you could even make more. And it's just like a vision that you could get much more behind. I think just people are maybe not aware of the opportunities out there or are too stuck in what they're doing to kind of be perceptive to those opportunities.
1: Let me jump back here to your allocation. How much do you have in non-retirement accounts and excluding your hard money loan? How much invested in non-retirement accounts, just traditional investment? Uh,
0: 470000 so
1: what's your pl- Is that just going to grow forever and you're going to take a big tax bill or what's your plan to, to get that
0: out? I think for the time being, yeah, just kind of let it grow until, and this, this actually going back to another point that you brought up very um, kind of in passing, but we're kind of interested in, we don't have kids right now, um, kind of crossing over and looking into having kids here shortly. And I think that just based off of my wife's personality, I mentioned getting into real estate and Airbnb properties. I think that her personality would jive really well with that. She's very handy, likes DIY stuff. And I don't think we want her necessarily to work full time when we have kids. But I think that that would be a really good way that she would essentially still be bringing in money managing those properties. And I could see pulling money out of the brokerage account and deploying that into Airbnb properties. I think that's probably the the soonest exit point I see for that. Otherwise, just let well, I continue to ride, I don't have any other plans for that.
2: Taylor, just to wrap up, are you planning on retiring early at all?
0: Yeah, I would say it's funny because I think this milestone always changes. But I think my latest thought is... To have a million invested with a paid off house and that will kind of give me a lot more options to take some risks. Also take this as like an opportunity to give a shout out to just like different side hustles and things like that. Like my wife, which this will not be a possibility once we have kids, but right now on the weekends, she is a party, like a princess for little kids birthday parties. She's been doing that for years and she usually makes like 10 to 15,000 a year doing that, just working saturdays and a fun one i just started is um i think that both of you guys actually interviewed on the or were guests on the stacking benjamin's podcast so i started writing for them about nine months ago so that's like my main kind of part-time side job slash side hustle and i think that with that with that goal that i mentioned earlier a million in investments plus a paid off house and then with a little bit of side hustle money, I don't ever plan to not work. But I think with like some some side hustles or ideally a business that I own, I think that's kind of what I want to jump over to. And since our lifestyle is so simple, since we don't need that much money right now, I think just some, some pretty simple side hustles plus our uh, pretty decent nest egg, I think that should put us in a really strong position to maybe take some risks or at least take some time. Off work so fingers crossed. In the next couple of years, my company will sell. I'll get some money, and that will be a really good kind of exit from full time work forever.
2: Is is that a million in in liquid non retirement accounts or just in million total?
0: I would say a million total invested, okay. including in retirement accounts. Okay,
2: now you, you bring up a, a paid for house. How is that critical to you feeling like you're comfortable enough to to walk away from maybe a full time job or, or or moving on from you know work and retiring
1: quote unquote?
0: I mean, I think at the end of the day, I view a until you pay off your house, it doesn't actually make any difference paid off early. But once it is paid off, I kind of view that as it's almost like a bond payment that. If you look at, which I know a lot of people say the 4% rule is outdated, even worse, I guess, if you look at like a 3% rule, in order to have my house payment covered, it would take a lot more than the value of my house to to cover that. So I just look at it like I'm buying cash flow back. So that's our biggest expense, even though we just refinanced down to 2.75% on a 15-year it's still like fifteen hundred a month is our payment. So if I can buy back that fifteen hundred a month, then that just gives us a lot more options. And we basically need a lot less monthly cash flow from side hustles or pulling any money out of our portfolio to float that. And I'm just very confident that we can come up with that amount of money just in side hustles without um without even pulling from our portfolio at all. So just let that continue to grow, kind of live off of side hustles. Maybe pull out a little bit of money here and there if we need to. And then I can always go back to work full time if I have to.
2: Yeah. Now, did you have a 30-year
1: mortgage before?
0: Yeah. And I felt like that was a mistake. Like I took the advice everyone else does. You never know what's going to happen. Get a 30-year mortgage and then pay the difference to pay it off in 15 or however fast you want to. But my wife and I, like our savings rate is so high that... It just like didn't really make sense. The difference for us, like three hundred a month, it's it's almost like imperceptible. Um, which I realize that's a very like privileged thing to say, and so that's where like the sometimes it, it's just not smart to take blanket advice from people because that makes sense for I would say most people, but it didn't make sense for us. Like I wish that we would have done fifteen initially, but at the same time, we may not have refinanced um, had we done fifteen initially. So I'm very happy that now it's again a fifteen year two point seven five percent
2: as you, as you're paying this off, how do you decide where put money in that in that taxable investments in your brokerage account versus paying you know the mortgage down? How do you kind of allocate where you put the money into the buckets now?
0: Yeah, it's not a very, I feel like scientific. It's not like I'm doing a lot of calculations on where exactly, but it. it's kind of whatever I, whatever I feel like doing at the time. I think I've kind of settled on like 4,000 a month towards our house payment. Um, so I guess like, yeah, 3,500 extra that we don't have to pay, but we're, we're saving anywhere between seven and 10,000 a month. So that's not too much like a stretch on our savings. And so we can continue to still dump the bulk of that into a brokerage account or into our um, 401ks. But I just want to devote like a, a growing share of that to our house. Now that now that I feel like I hit this million dollar threshold, um, I just want to start accelerating our home payoff as much as possible.
2: Yeah. Now, as, as you approach this million dollar liquid mark and just looking out in the future, are there certain experiences or things that you want to do that maybe you, you aren't doing now or that maybe will allow you with with the time freedom to do down the road i think one thing i've
0: always wanted to do is almost have like a like a one-way ticket to specifically europe i've always wanted to do a one-way ticket to europe with no itinerary when i arrive or no flight back and i think something like this is perfect to facilitate that although as soon as you start having kids that is no longer as as feasible but a little bit slower travel I think it's just been a big goal of mine, not going somewhere for three days at a time, but going somewhere for weeks or month or even multiple months at a time. And if you're not tied to a job, which going back to me writing for a podcast, it doesn't matter where I am, I can write from that podcast wherever. And the hours are also nearly 100% flexible. Something like that would be really appealing to just kind of take wherever I feel like living at the time, so I'm crossing my fingers I'll be able to do that tour of Europe and just see all the things that I've wanted to see. I've been to Europe a couple times, but I haven't seen all the things that I want to see. So I would say travel, and um, I guess that's one. Or I'll just kind of highlight this is one thing that I've learned that while we hit a net worth goal that we've been shooting for forever. I don't feel like we've completely lived up the kidless years as much as we could have. And I think that there was a little bit more of a balance that we could have struck with this. When you're looking so hard at money, it's really easy to say, Oh, well, do I want to spend $5,000 on this vacation? When in the grand scheme of things, if I looked at my net worth right now, and it was $5,000 less, I wouldn't feel like a failure. But I would have a really, really cool experience. And so that's kind of been my goal probably in the past six months is to focus more on using my money as a tool to buy things that I will enjoy and things that will enhance my life rather than just purely a tool to grow my net worth for some hypothetical future reason.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, no, I think it's a good point. I think we talk about that a lot, right? Is, is work-life balance and I and mean, we talked about on the intro one of our show uh, well, a couple of weeks ago here. Um, somewhere in the one forties about allocating experiences and time and some of those experiences you don't get back, or some experiences are meant for a certain age age group, right? And there's things you're willing to do now that you're not willing to do later, even mm-hmm. if you have the time to do. that's that's an interesting conversation. But we're running short on time here, so I just want to close with a couple rapid fire questions. At what age did you become a millionaire?
0: Thirty one. Okay, what's your annual household spend? Including the mortgage, forty thousand.
1: Any uh, mistakes or advice if or if you could give it to somebody who you know if you could start over, anything you'd do differently?
0: I would say uh I mean obviously there's some learnings that I gave you from the, the hard money one that I mean very niche to that if someone's not interested in that and I feel like I touched on that pretty heavily. My other my only other advice would be if something seems interesting to you, whether that be a side hustle kind of business idea. I feel like just take a stab at it and give it a shot. I would not have this podcast job that I really enjoy that's on the side had I not started a blog a couple of years ago. And so you just never know where these where these opportunities will lead in the next couple of years and just to be perceptive about different opportunities just because you feel like you're in a good situation right now, which I'm sure so many people in the like quote-unquote intels of the world feel like they're in a good situation, there's probably a better situation, or there may be a better situation out there that's maybe better suited for you, your skills, your interests. And so just be perceptive, too. Is there another opportunity that maybe you're not thinking of today? So that's that'd be the main advice I'd give.
1: Yeah, awesome. Well, thanks for sharing, and thanks for coming on, Taylor. So again, he was on episode 27 net worth of about 500,000 on again now, a net worth of a million. So you hit a million. Congrats. Thanks again for coming on. Really appreciate it.
0: Yeah, thanks. Thanks again. Thanks, Taylor.